are people going to take anything you say actually seriously? Are they going to hear that you're an award-winning anti-capitalist BDSM techno performing arts collective and laugh about it and not really realize that there's something that you want to bring to the table more than that? Hello, and welcome to the EuroWhat, episode 126 for the week of July 19th, 2021. I'm Ben Smith, and I'm joined today by Mike McComb. Hey, Mike. Hello. We are a pair of Americans trying to make sense of the Eurovision Song Contest, and this week we'll be talking about the Hot 30 documentary, A Song Called Hate, with our special guest, Evan Stewart. How's it going, Mike? It's going all right. How are you doing, Ben? Uh, It's good. Eurovision again happened. This was one that I was looking forward to. Uh, They did 1980 this time around. Given that 1980 is the what's another year year, it could just be a good motto for Eurovision again as a whole. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, they they drop hints of both Eurovision again and the Eurovision uh, Twitter accounts. And that was the first reference that I saw in this past week. But then the other hints were actually fitting in with 1980. And it's like, okay, are they just doing red herrings? Will 1980 be the red herring every week? But no, this time it came true. I've watched bits and pieces because we've previously on the show talked about Morocco's lone appearance in 1980. And I was familiar with the Turkey performance because last year I watched all of Turkey's performances for show purposes, not just for my own personal amusement. Watching the full show, I had not realized just how all over the place the various songs were. I'm not sure I enjoyed this one, and I'm trying to figure out why. And I think part of it might be the kind of filling in the gaps of where we are in Eurovision, because we've watched 1976, and the uh, Netherlands hosted that edition as well. And since they were hinch hitting for hosting in 1980, because Israel was not able to host, they just recycled most of their staging elements from that. It definitely felt like a retread of the 1976 contest. And then we'd also watch the 1979 contest so it's continuation and like 1980 in pop music is not my favorite era we are not in the full swing of what we consider the 80s we have glimpses of that like you have telex just being like hello yes synthesizers yeah, I think there. it was also just a case of there wasn't really a song that I latched on to. And I don't know. I've, I've also just been in kind of a funk. So maybe that was also feeding into it. There was several dancers dressed as penguins, though. There was also the steel drum band for the uh, interval. Oh, yeah, it was, was fun. Yeah, that was a real delight. And also just so weird in the sense that everybody in the audience is sitting in their formal outfits just watching this performance this is not the dance party that Eurovision normally that you're, that, is. That it would be if this was the interval act now there was like one change from past Eurovision agains where the scoring sequence rather than showing us the static scoreboard that would have been there they swapped that out with an overlay from the reorder board which has gone ahead and created the active scoreboards that we know and love from modern Eurovision for all of the past contests yeah what did, what did you think of that insertion i didn't mind i have had trouble following the static scoreboards in previous eurovision agains but i also understand why there was a little bit of uproar 
Yeah, I was team uproar on that one. I'm very much of the mindset that these should be treated as historical texts and trying to see how communication and television worked in the given time that contest is taking place. I agree with you that they are very difficult to follow, like with the 1969 contest, especially with a different scoring system in play. It was Mm -hmm. very difficult to tell what was going on. I thought that the 1980s scoreboard actually did a good job of communicating which country is giving points right now, which country is in the lead, and very clear scoring display. There aren't numbers flapping all over the place because it's a digital display instead of the flippy number display. I do like the flippy numbers, though. It is visually appealing. I'm glad they tried it this one time. I'm I'm concerned if it becomes a permanent fixture. Some sort of picture-in-picture thing where we still get to see what's happening on screen. A big feature of the scoring this time around was each country had a different phone. And I feel like we did not get to see as many of the phones as I would have liked to have seen. I think it also just points to the fact that even today, the scoreboard is really confusing. Like that is the part of any Eurovision party where your guests are just going to look at you in horror and be like, I was told there would be no math. Oh, I should have told you that. Like that's a good hour, hour, 15 minutes of the show. (laughs) It's just like we're going to be watching a lot of accounting happening. Checking in at the news desk, we have a bunch of, of updates. I was going to describe them as fun updates, but the first one is not that fun. Belarus has been expelled from the European Broadcast Union, which does not surprise me, but does certainly mean that we will not be seeing them in the contest for a few years. Again, this is not the top priority right now for what's going on in Belarus, but it is a symptom of a much larger concern. The response that the broadcaster provided, they don't seem all that bothered by this update. They seem to have a lot of frustration with the EBU. It's going to be a long while, I think, before things return to normal, or if it even returns to normal. In summation, very large sigh. As of last Monday, we found out that there are 17 cities that are interested in hosting Eurovision next year. Oh boy. Uh (laughs) Oh boy. Are we going to get a week-long festival where it's decided who gets to host and each city needs to do a cover song one night? That would be a more fun way of doing this process. The way that it's going to break down, the 17 cities declared their intention and have been provided uh, a bid book template to fill out by August 4th. RAI and the EBU will work through those bids and make a determination on who should host. I think there's going to be a lot of drop-off between now and August 4th. Just in terms of event planning and how that works, it's a rule of halves type thing. Mm-hmm. Half of them are going to drop out once they see like what the bid book is asking for and they'll be like, oh, yeah, we can't provide that because there are some uh, specifications. They need to be near an international airport. They need to have enough hotel space for delegations and guests. And they need an indoor venue that's available for eight to ten weeks with air conditioning and a capacity for an audience of about eight to ten thousand. And that's also with all of the equipment and the load ins and all of the other facilities that Eurovision needs to do all of the Eurovision stuff. A few of the blogs have been looking through all of the cities that have submitted interest, and they think that there's only three or four truly viable options. Uh, Like right now, it's Turin, Milan, and I think Bologna are the front runners. And even Milan, I would be surprised about because they're doing the Olympics sometime in the next five or six years, I think. And I can't imagine wanting to do both. Yeah, that's a lot. No word on when a final decision will be made. That's 
probably going to be relative to the number of cities that do fully submit their bid books. But we should know that in a few weeks. Wow, August 4th really is coming up quick. It is going to be here before we know it. In other Italian news, <laughs> how is Monoskin doing on the charts? It turns out very well. They're popping up on my other music sites that I read. Monoskin popped up in Stereo Gums this week in pop, talking about Began. Began is a cover of a Four Seasons song that they performed on X Factor Italia. It's the the back of their back catalog. Thanks to the monoculture and just the general Spotify-ness of everything now, that song is what's doing gangbusters worldwide. It debuted on the Hot 100 at 78. As of last week, it was up to number 46, and it will likely break the top 40 as this episode drops. I mean, we're going to keep an eye on that, but they keep climbing up, and they keep cracking all of the things that help you impact on Radio Worldwide. Began is now number one on the global Spotify chart, two weeks and counting, and they're cracking the the top 20 most listened artists on Spotify. They are 19th at present with 45 million listeners monthly. That's a lot of people. Wow. Yeah. Compounding that is that they have a new video out this week for I Want to Be Your Slave. Have you seen the video, Mike? It's very good. I watched about two thirds of it. I'm not a huge fan of the song. It's fine. It's just not for mm-hmm. me. Watch most of the video. I, I see where you're going with this. It's fine. But I was mainly watching uh, Twitter clutching their <laughs> pearls. Uh, <laughs> The video hit and I could just hear the sound of everybody's laptop fan trying to make a gif of various scenes. Everybody is in horny jail now. Oh, to be 22 again. Uh, Right? (laughs) I was not like that at 22. (laughs) Yeah. Misspent youth. That is also doing gangbusters. That has received 10 million views in approximately 72 hours. Oof. Yeah. Yeah, I I think they're going to be okay. I think they're going to do fine. They're good kids. <laughs> Your vision might be a footnote in their career by this time next year. Who knows? Monoskin's current dominance and particularly the aesthetics of the I Want to Be Your Slave video feel like a nice lead in to what we're talking about today. There's a lot of aesthetic similarity between I Want to Be Your Slave and some of Hattori's Eurovision follow-up singles, particularly Clownstroker. It's much more sexual than I think the post-Eurovision singles tend to be. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's an understatement. We're talking about the documentary about the band, and we are talking about that with Evan Stewart. He's often tweeting about movies and film festivals, and seems like the perfect person to have a conversation about a song called Hate. In case you're not familiar with it, uh, here's a squib from their distributor's website. Hatri claimed to be driven by a mission to end late capitalism. Their selection to represent Iceland at Eurovision is audacious, but now they must confront the true cost of taking their message to a global stage. Faced with the political context, of a non-political Eurovision Song Contest, hosted in Israel with occupied territories on the doorstep, Hatri decides to take a stand. Ultimately, a song called Hate asks, what is the role of the artist and do they have a responsibility to engage in politics? Evan was a great person to talk to about this as someone who has both deep Eurovision knowledge and also deep film festival Oscar season knowledge. Get your favorite drink. We'll be saying Eurovision is not a political contest several times. And (laughs) yeah, we did have this conversation in early June in the middle of a lot of the escalation that was happening in Israel-Palestine this year. We wanted to make sure that you had that context in mind as we were discussing the film. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the show, Evan. 
Thank you very much for having me. The question that that we always ask when somebody is new to the show, how did you get introduced to Eurovision? Well, it's been a little bit of a progression, as I think it is for a lot of us, where it slowly starts to take over our lives as Eurofans. I heard about the contest in 2008, right after it had happened. Uh, I just graduated from college. I stayed in the town where I went to college. Everyone else went away. So it was a pretty quiet summer. And I, I heard about this thing that was like a mix of American Idol and geography. And I was sold. I, I watched Kale Kale from Armenia. And I was totally hooked. A little baffled on how Russia won. But I was hooked on Armenia. And every year since then, it's been a little more that I've gotten into it to the point that I've started going to national finals. I go to events in New York City where I live. Uh, We have regular dance parties, an annual watch party, not during COVID, of course, but before then. It's become something that is one of my biggest enjoyments. That's awesome. Which national finals have you been to? So I went in 2019 to Melody Grand Prix in Norway. Ooh, It was wonderful. If you ever get a chance to go to a national final, I definitely recommend it. They're much smaller than Eurovision. Generally, it's the local OGAE or the International Fan Club group for that country. If you can get hooked up to them and their group parties, you'll meet all sorts of people. They'll often have meet and greets, at least they did in Norway, with the band. So I met Kino before the national final had happened. Oh, wow. It's wonderful. And I I went to Australia in 2020 as well. And they were equally, if not more, welcoming than the Norwegians. So definitely recommend it. Nice. Let's talk about the Hatri documentary. I was very excited that this was popping up at American film festivals. I assumed at some point I would get to throw a couple bucks Amazon's way or something to be able to finally watch this, but it it has been on the film festival circuit this year. Yes, it won the Best Nordic Documentary at the Oslo Picks Festival and the Best Long Play Music Documentary Award at CU Sound. Iceland has been one of the main countries in the boycott Eurovision movement that was happening after Israel won the contest. Iceland has recognized Palestine as an independent nation for a while, so they were one of the first countries to jump on that movement. There was a lot of talk back and forth about, even in the movie, of, okay, so even if Hattori wins, are they going to go to Israel? But one of the things that was most eye-opening for me about the documentary is how all of these things were happening at the same time that Eurovision was happening. Everything that Iceland Music News was pumping out, there was a solid stream of videos on top of Eurovision rehearsals, on top of Hattori doing all of these other things over in Palestine. Yeah, that was one of the things that was new to me watching the video. I consider myself a pretty big Eurofan. I feel like I'm I'm fairly in the know. And I I knew that they were meeting up with uh, a Palestinian artist to produce a song, which eventually came out, I think, right after the contest. I was surprised the extent to which one of their goals in Israel had been to engage with Palestinian artists and cultural figures to sort of raise awareness to this movement that had been percolating for a year in Iceland once Israel was clearly going to be the host of that Eurovision. I'm wondering how much of the Icelandic music news portion was some sleight of hand, essentially look over here, look at us walking through the hotel and doing sort of a parody of one of those Vogue 78 question videos. Look at this clip from Ruve on the beach with Hatari in their gear. Look at all these things so that everybody's paying attention to that. Nobody is paying attention to what the other hand is doing, meeting up with Bashar Murad and doing all these other things, going into Palestine, getting those scarves. It's just very interesting to see all of the moving pieces that were happening. I think that's one of the 
complications of this movie for me. I don't have a clear sense of how much of this was planned by Hattori, how much of this was planned by Rue. It didn't feel as organic to me as I think I was expecting. And I I think the fact that there is a documentary that exists is pointing toward that. Mm -hmm. Because why is there a documentary crew? Is the story that the documentary was expecting to tell Iceland's act at Eurovision when Iceland's preference would be to boycott this event? It seems like there's some puppetry going on. I agree. And I think Ruve has to have been part of it. And I think Ruve aired this in three parts as a TV program. I know that in the lead up to the contest, they had done, and I think it was with the same company, had done a documentary about Hattori. And I'm wondering if this came out of, we're going to follow them and maybe we'll do a larger scale follow-up. I think a lot of the project with Hattori was this, oh crap moment of, we've done a lot of anti-consumerist posing and we, we have made it this art project and now we have actually won a thing and have to go figure out what we're actually doing with the thing that we said we're going to do. It is the dog catching its tail at, yeah. at parts. Of, it's just, well, now what? That was my impression. I didn't get any idea that Ruve was involved. In fact, I got the impression that they were actively trying to avoid any involvement of the broadcaster because, of course, Eurovision is not a political contest and Ruve cannot be involved in any overtly political statements. But I do agree with Ben that it sounded like they knew that they wanted to bring this notion of Palestinian sovereignty. Iceland has been very pro-Palestine, and they wanted to recognize that fact, but they didn't quite know how to do it. And I think we actually see that play out over the course of their interviews. I tried to review some of their interviews recently that they did with various blogs ahead of Eurovision, and, and I think the documentary also speaks to it, that they knew the end result that they wanted, but they didn't exactly know the means to that end. We see them discussing at various points what if we just stood there on the stage for our three minutes and there's a difference between what's happening in the arena and what's being shown because there's probably a delay and they'll show our previously taped performance if we don't actually perform. They're still in the process of workshopping what are we actually going to do to make a statement and looking at some of the Palestinian people that they've been able to connect with and going, is this good activism or is this us not helping? Is this bad? And trying to gauge that. And there is a question of, was this a successful way of using Eurovision as a political venue? And does Eurovision work as a political venue, given that the contest itself makes it very clear that Eurovision is not a political contest? Yeah, I was left wondering if Eurovision was the place for this, not from a what is the goal of Eurovision standpoint, which comes up a lot when we talk about politics at Eurovision. But when you go to a contest where the whole idea is spectacle and fronts and camp and kitsch and tongue-in-cheek. Are people going to take anything you say actually seriously as a political statement? Are they going to hear that you're an award-winning anti-capitalist BDSM techno performing arts collective and laugh about it and not really realize that there's something that you want to bring to the table more than that? I think the storytelling aspect is interesting here because unlike American reality shows where you learn the entire life story of somebody who's just auditioning to be on American Idol, you get none of that in the Eurovision presentation. All of the contestants are just song delivery mechanisms. You get no background. The only time that you ever really get to hear them speak is in green room interviews or if they win and then they babble. The 20 second soundbite of someone who's just in shock from winning. Right. And then it just gets into the level of Euro fan that you are. Like if you're just watching it on the night, then you'll be like, oh, okay, this country won. All right. 
change the channel or probably go to bed because it's well after midnight. If you're a little bit more in depth, you say, okay, I'm going to watch the press conference. And then people who are doing podcasts about documentaries <laughs> about, <laughs> about events that happen at this one particular contest. So knowing the backstory of things, I agree that I don't think that it's really going to have that much of an impact. And I think of that in terms of the 2021 contest, where tensions were peaking in Israel around the time of the contest, that might be reflected in lower scores from the jury or lower televote. And I don't think there was really any sort of impact at all. And it's assuming that people are much more engaged with the individuals participating than they probably really are. On the flip side of things, one of the benefits of this is even if fans don't know, it does say something, either for good and bad, we see a little bit of both in the movie, that uh, an artist who's coming to this event is actively aware of the conflict between Israel and Palestine and is trying to reach out to Palestinian artists. I say for good and bad because it's an olive branch that's extended to people. We saw Kate Miller-Heidke meet up with Palestinian women while she was in Israel. But then also for the worst, because a couple times in the documentary, it's clear that maybe Hatri haven't thought this through that well, and they don't have buy-in from locals, and they, they get a, a mean letter from a Palestinian poet who says, you're actually not helping much right here. Some of the things you said have, have been pretty offensive to the Palestinian state. Maybe if the end goal isn't necessarily what ends up on the telecast, but is sort of to represent your country, there is something substantive that can come of it. Agreed. I do like that the movie does show both sides of that. It doesn't just give the one side of this is what we said to do and we're nailing it. Hatri does step in it and and has to think about what are we actually doing here? Are we actually able to do what we're setting out to do? Or is that even a good thing? Yeah. Do the people that we're trying to help actually want us to help? Well, and it's something that we talk about with songs at the contest in a way. There are times where we, we have said when someone is telling a story and their song, is it their story to tell? Similarly for, for Hattori, they want to use their performance and their appearance in the contest to bring eyes to this issue. Is this really their issue to do that with? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know that we actually get really a resolution on that. It sort of assumes that what they have done is a noble act, aside from a few instances where maybe they make some missteps. Yeah, it just lets that hang out there ambiguously, which I did like. And I think part of it does come out in these moments of them going, oh, man, is are we actually doing a good thing? Are we approaching this in the right way? Getting to see Hatari, the art project, versus Matty, Clemens, and Einar as individuals. I'm glad that it builds out some of their background and how this whole project started. Yeah, I had no idea that they were cousins at all. I was half aware of that when Hatari became a thing in 2019. Just like immediately imprinted. Oh, this is great. Love this. I need to know everything about it. I like that it built out that angle of things and showed the real human beings because as an art project, one thing that Hatari really succeeds at, and I think partially it's because they have this massive team around them in building out this Eurovision performance, is they've been very good at showing you exactly what they want to show you. They've been very in control of their media narrative. And by putting the documentary in somebody else's hands, we're getting to see a side of them that we maybe haven't seen before. I think that was one of the things that I loved most about Pottery as an entity was how it was a masterclass in communications and media studies. These are people who have thought about every single aspect around the three minutes they're going to be on stage. Right. It's just the other... 23 hours and 57 minutes that happened during that day that they're not able to control that the entire time. And I think this documentary did do a good job of revealing that and also capturing how grueling 
the Eurovision experience can yes. be and just like mentally and emotionally exhausting, completely absent of the extra stuff that they were doing on top of that. <laughs> Without all of the extracurriculars they're doing, mm-hmm. running around, sitting in the van, going to various parts of Palestine, the Eurovision treadmill for those two weeks is exhausting. Yeah. And seeing them pushed to their own personal brink yeah. with that is is just great at filling in what was this experience like? This started as an art project, and I think they got a step up that they may not have been expecting and all of a sudden had to figure out what the rest of the project was, particularly for Eurovision. I was going to say, there's so much pressure on these artists. I always wonder, as Eurofans, we generally know how people are going to do, not the specifics, but we know if someone's going to do well or not going into Eurovision. And and I wonder what what it's like for the people who know that they're probably not going to do that well at Eurovision. But on top of that, that question of, you know, am I going to do a good job to represent my country? They're also questioning, am I also going to represent my entire worldview while I am doing this thing that I'm doing? And you really see it weigh on them. And I think they were in a challenging position because... I think they knew that they were going to do all right, just given the reception that they had initially, but they were in a dark horse position. Could they actually win? And I think that just has to be stupefying <laughs> in a way. If you're not one of the like top tier favorites and just be like, oh, do I actually have a shot here? What does that mean? You're already stressed enough. Yeah, just that additional stress of oh no, what if we are also the winners and we have planned to do this? How is that now going to work? Mm. They had thought through, okay, we're going to display this whenever we show up on the scoreboard. That'll be great. It will disrupt things for a few seconds. The increasing pressure of, oh, they haven't announced our name yet. Oh, man. I generally get the sense with Eurovision artists that not all of them, but many of them don't know what they're getting into. Eurovision is a massive beast, and the people that go to Eurovision and follow Eurovision are obsessed about it. And so suddenly you're thrust where you are this huge star, especially in Iceland, I can imagine, where 99.9% of people watch Eurovision. So maybe they might have known more than the average Eurovision participant. I saw an interview the year after, so it would have been Song of the Captain in 2020, where they asked them, what was it like representing Iceland? And they were expressing how shocked they were to suddenly be that famous, that it was not something that they had anticipated at all. And that certainly has to be like a whirlwind or definitely would be challenging. And like such a weirdly specific level of fame. <laughs> yes. Particularly for Iceland. Iceland is, I think, maybe 300,000 people. So suddenly going from being a local band to having all of the Euro fans like just leap onto that, I, I cannot imagine. And again, it's such a weird specific level of fame where you have certain levels of recognition, but also elsewhere you're just who? And also the type of people that follow Eurovision, just generalizing here, are not exactly the type of people that might have listened to their music beforehand. So suddenly they have all these (laughs) new followers and they're like school moms from, I don't know, Liverpool. (laughs) So you have to wonder, (laughs) what have we gotten ourselves into? Yeah, like I have to wonder if they anticipated how popular they were going to be with children in their performances, the like children's choirs that were singing Hachin Munsigra and how they were the, oh, what what is the Ash Wednesday holiday? All the kids are dressing up in Hattori costumes. <laughs> That's really cool from an outsider perspective, but that also probably has to be really, I could not imagine anybody wearing a costume of me. I think that would just be really weird. And then, yes. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. Just like, just going from zero to Halloween costume. Yes, exactly. I did like that the movie focused on that. The kids get it and understand it in a way that a lot of the people who are looking maybe too seriously at the message 
We're trying to suss out what are they doing? What does this actually mean? This is great. These are cartoon characters. One other thing I really liked, I thought that the score and sound design, particularly after the banners come out, was masterful at capturing the anxiety that everybody is suddenly feeling. You're talking about after the scarves come out? Yeah, after the scarves come out, it gave me anxiety in a good way. I feel like part of it was Einar's Instagram, them recording people jeering them, booze, feeling like they have to rush away, they have to talk to John Olasand. Yeah, you feel immersed in the, the, the situation they've just put themselves in. I remember at my Eurovision party watching this and like, seeing what they did and i was not quietly freaking out in my living room being like oh my god i can't believe they did that and was genuinely worried for their safety and then seeing the instagram video later that day or the next day whenever that came out all right yep that intense feeling of anxiety was well warranted (laughs) seeing that and seeing various people spam their instagram comments Mm -hmm. after that was just wild yeah, there's a scene in the movie where, I'm sorry, I don't know some of their names, but some of the supporting members of Hatri are crying because they're legitimately worried for their safety and questioning what they've just done. Worried about their family's safety. They, I think one of them had children. You realize that this is a very specific sort of group that has created this image that you've been following over several months, but there are people behind it and they have actual feelings and are scared like anyone else, even if they seem pretty serious and stoic. It was very eye-opening as a Eurofan to see this other side of them. They do a really good job at presenting this very unified front of of the band and their backing dancers. Solbjort, the the lead dancer, and Einar have a kid. They, They are a couple And yeah, just like in that moment, just seeing them just being very frightened for their safety. Yeah. I think it's when they realize, oh, we are no longer the cartoon characters that we were back in February at Song Vakepnen. We are real people and we just did a thing. Yeah. Yeah. And we are in an area where a lot of people have a lot of right to be very angry about what we just did. Mm -hmm. So thinking about the discussion we had about what the story of this movie is, how reality TV packages things. One thing that comes to mind is trying to figure out who the audience for this movie is. It doesn't really do anything to explain what the Eurovision Song Contest is. It assumes either that you have some knowledge or that maybe you just don't care. If you're someone who is not a Eurofan, why are you coming to this movie? That was the question that I was struggling with because it really provides almost no context. I think it does assume that you will know what Eurovision is. And I I don't know if it really firmly established the stakes. It, it established the stakes of what Hattori was trying to do, but I don't think it necessarily hit the scope of what the potential impact of that could be. I do not know who would go to see this movie without any sort of prior knowledge. I have to say, though, that we're thinking about it from an American perspective. And if you show this in Europe, which is where at least one of the prizes you mentioned had come from, a lot of that heavy lifting is already done just culturally. People are going to know. You probably even have heard of the band before uh, or remember them. So they'll know. I do think in the U.S. it probably is a little harder. We also have a lot of context of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So maybe that sort of compensates. Yeah, but I also have to wonder, even with it in the European space, what level of Eurofan is it that is going to seek this out? I, I really do feel like it is that bubble of 
Eurovision Twitter that is going to be really excited about this movie and how many people are actually going to remember that this even happened. The week before the 2021 contest, Eurovision hosted a rewatch of the 2019 contest on YouTube. And the moment that they take out the banners was completely removed from that broadcast. So Eurovision disavows any knowledge of this ever happening, which is problematic in a number of ways, but it's also consistent with Eurovision is not a political contest. Eurovision is going to control its own history. If people did not remember that from 2019 or didn't watch the 2019 contest, they're not necessarily going to have context that this even happened. I think this was a Ruve co-production on the final film and it did air there. So I'm wondering if it was just something that when it came together, it was something that they planned to have as part of their coverage. But also it's a well-made film, I thought, at least like in terms of documentary. So why not give that a little bit further release? I'm a, f- a fan of film festivals and, and films in general. I always joke that there's three seasons in my year, Oscar season, Eurovision season, and summer. Uh, this past year was actually really amazing as a cinephile because all the film festivals were forced to go online. And so I'm wondering, as we're talking about who is the audience, why did this get picked up by American festivals, whether the barriers to entry were lower to put it online as opposed to try and get people in a theater to see this in a festival lineup. So maybe this actually benefited in a way from everything being online during COVID. That makes a lot of sense. I used to live in the Cleveland area, which is why I was particularly attuned to the Cleveland Film Festival. The town that I lived in was one of the venues for a couple of films. And I could maybe see this film playing in that theater because it's with a school that has a conservatory of music. It's a music documentary, so let's throw that in there. But were I not a Euro fan, I probably would not have sought it out. On the Minneapolis side of things, that's why I was delighted by it, because I have roots there. But once Cleveland happened, I immediately started looking at Boston, which has an international film fest every year around May. Are they going to pick it up too? Is this happening? And they did not. And they were completely online. So I do like the idea of it being, as the film festival is going online, just taking a chance on some things they maybe wouldn't as part of giving a wider variety of options. And also having fewer things to pull from. True. Yeah. And it could also be part of a package deal where the distributor may have had other films that were going to be at the festival. And they're just like, oh, we can throw this one in as well. And so sure, if it's going to be online, it's just throwing up a link. It's not needing to secure another screen. True. And there's a story about Mystery Science Theater of them having to talk to the film distributors and explain to them that no... We don't want the good ones. We want the ones that you package with them. I, th- I believe it got described as we don't want the cocaine. We want the baby laxatives that you cut with the cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I don't think that. The- to, to be yeah to, yeah. to be fair, like I'm not calling a song called "Hate" the the baby laxatives of. Yes. And I'm not calling it cocaine either. I, I don't know. <laughs> it's somewhere in between. I guess, it's somewhere I guess, in between, which, yeah, is, which, is, which, is, which is like a fun way to segue into, would you recommend this movie? I absolutely would. I think any Eurovision fan who knows who Audrey are <laughs> would be interested to see the backside. Uh, and it's a side of Eurovision that we don't normally see. But I'd also say that if you're interested in philanthropy and service, maybe international relations, there's something to be had here. Part of the documentary is about buy-in from local constituents, which Hattori didn't exactly have at times. And it's an, an interesting case study. And if you want to do good, how do you make sure that you're actually accomplishing what you set out to do and that you're not just doing it from for your own benefit? Agreed. And I think another area where I really appreciated the film was 
having a a non-American produced perspective on what life looks like between Israel and Palestine, Mm -hmm. especially with the events of the last few months, it was great context to understand why things were happening and to see things from a perspective that did not necessarily have the same media narrative that American media tends to have around that. I think I recommend this movie, but watching it with someone who can be a guide or be there to answer questions to provide a little bit more context. Even though ultimately I don't think Eurovision is the focus of this movie, there's enough of that content in there that I think it needs to be better explained. And if you're watching this movie with a Euro fan, they should be able to provide that context for a purely general audience. I'm not sure. I I think they're going to end up just getting confused by a lot of the mechanics in the movie and may end up missing the root of the story, if that makes sense. I agree with you that I would recommend it, but also be like, we should watch together so that 10 minutes in, I can pause and give you an info dump on Eurovision and then we can proceed. Yeah. Info dump or... If you are watching it through streaming, like maybe having the 2019 Wikipedia page open. And I kind of hate making that suggestion, especially with documentaries, really just no other screens. But I feel like this movie does need a little bit more of an explainer. As a documentary, I think that's a bit of a problem, but I don't know if that's enough of a problem to say, no, you should not watch this movie. I think Euro fans will definitely get something out of it. I think a more general audience may struggle with it. I'm also thinking of this in terms of it being a double feature with Fire Saga, which it is causing a lot of conflict in my mind. That was also filming at the same time as this. What was really happening with Iceland in 2019 was wildly different. <laughs> and yeah, it's two sides of a very strange coin. I'm going to change my answer. I think that is exactly how I would recommend people watch this movie. Yeah, I was about to say the same thing as like, Actually, Fire Saga does enough of an explainer. Yeah. It primes your brain. You watch that and like your friend loves it. And you're like, great news. Do you want to see what Iceland actually did in 2019? And they're going to go, yes. And they're going to go, surprise, it's a documentary. And it's about (laughs) Palestine. It's the classic bait and switch. You get them with the floof and then suddenly they're talking about global conflicts. Where did Dan Stevens go? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for joining us, Evan. Thank you for having me, guys. Is there anything that you would like to plug? while you're here. I'm on Twitter. You can find me at Evan M. Stewart. I'm constantly discussing Eurovision, films, mostly those two things. That's going to do it for this episode of the EuroWhat. Thanks for listening. The EuroWhat podcast is hosted by Ben Smith. That's me. And Mike McComb. That's me. You can follow the EuroWhat on the podcast app of your choice. If you would like to support the show, we're also on Patreon at patreon.com slash EuroWhat. Show notes are in the description of this episode and on our website at EuroWhat.com. If you'd like to contact us, we're at EuroWhat on Twitter, or you can email EuroWhatPodcast at gmail.com. Next time on the EuroWhat, we're going to do a deep dive on one of the feeder systems for Eurovision contestants, the New Wave.